The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. If you're keeping track, this is episode number 202 of Coffee Break with Game Changers. And I only mention that because two days ago on October 5th, 2015, we unofficially and very quietly celebrated our fourth anniversary on the air here on the Business Channel. So woohoo for Coffee Break. Let me get started with our topic today. The buzz on the street. What are you waiting for? I know I usually close with with that, but I'm opening with it today. And I'm talking specifically to manufacturers. Okay. If it comes as a surprise to you that we're already midway into the fourth industrial revolution, yes, I said fourth, count them, here's a news flash for you. Your manufacturing facility had better be taking advantage of what we like to call exponential advances in technology, in exploding big data. It's not just big data, it's exploding and amazing innovations. Yes, they're out there. And if you don't, if you hide under a rock, if you keep that door closed and put the blinds down to the windows and ignore it all, well, the news isn't so great. You will be obsolete and not in the far future, in the near future. So if you're in the mood or the interest or the mindset to catch up, we've got some great news for you. First, you can learn how to harness the power of Interesting things like in-memory computing. News to you, we'll talk about it. IoT, that's the Internet of Things. Wearable technologies, additive manufacturing, predictive capabilities. They're all important and you need to know more. Next, big news flash again. You'd better stop underestimating your customers' expectations because they're changing, they're evolving, they're growing, they're now. Guess what? Your competition is paying attention to them, so you'd better do so too. And there's a lot more. Are you ready? I hope so. We have a panel of three experts today. And by the way, if you're just tuning in, this is going to be a part two topic, transporting your factory into the future now, capital N-O-W. So let's bring on my first panelist returning to Coffee Break. It's Mark Frank. Deloitte Consulting's U.S. Automotive SAP Practice Leader. And Mark has sent me a great quote. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six little words that pack a punch. And the, the quote is, vision without execution is just hallucination. But before Mark says a word, I looked up this quote and I found that it has been attributed to Henry Ford, speaking of automotive. It's been attributed to Thomas Edison, speaking of amazing innovations. And it also comes from a Japanese proverb where instead of saying vision without execution is just hallucination, it goes vision without execution is just a daydream. Aha. Mark Frank, you didn't know you picked such a globally attributed quote. How are you, Mark? 
I'm doing fine this morning, Bonnie. I hope you're doing well as well. I am. Thank you. Great quote. Talk to me. How does this apply to our topic? We're trying to give a warning to manufacturers to catch up, open the windows, look at the light, and let all this amazing stuff in. So how does this apply, Mark? Well, I came across this quote from, I I, I attributed it to Henry Ford, and I kind of thought if we were going to talk about the future of manufacturing, who better to to, uh, quote than one of the early innovators in manufacturing? And so I I kind of thought this would be a fun thing to talk about. And I also like the fact that as we're talking about the future, you know, we can sit back and, and think about things, but it's those who actually uh, roll up their sleeves and do things that make all these things a reality. So I thought that was a, just a fun quote to kind of think about as we talk about the topic. Exactly. And, and Mark, vision without execution. So let's apply this specifically to manufacturers. If they open the blinders or if they say, my goodness, the world is changing, evolving, what, the fourth industrial revolution, we better do something about it. Let's get a committee together. Oh, my goodness. Let's get a team together. Let's get something together. But they don't act on it. They create the idea for innovation, but they don't do anything. What's that going to mean to their business, Mark? Well, if they don't do anything, then others are going to go quicker than they will. But I'm actually finding those that are really innovating are starting to take uh, pages out of all kinds of other industries' playbooks, from what's going on in Silicon Valley to some of the the, uh, folks that are off doing new company startups. So it's fun to see some of the old-style manufacturers really kind of pick things up and try and keep one foot in the the current business as well as trying to make sure they're staying one foot in what the, the future holds. So yeah, and that's you know, a tough job. Going, getting past the community, that's good. Yeah, that's a tough job. Are we talking about all manufacturing? Just to level set here, Mark, before I bring on our second panelist, what's your reference point? Is it just automotive or are we, we talking about manufacturing as a as an entity general all over the world? Well, I think it's it's generally all over the world. I think each sector is probably dealing with things a little bit differently. There's some cool things going on in automotive right now, but I think some of the lessons apply to the, the broad landscape. Okay, thank you very much, Mark Frank, and a shout-out to our good friends at Deloitte as well. And let's turn to our second panelist. He's a newcomer. Very happy to welcome David Dreyer. If you're looking him up, his last name is D-R-E-Y-E-R. He's a Solutions Principal for Manufacturing in SAP's North America Center of Excellence. And here's a Mark Twain quote, and we are seeing a huge resurgence in interest in Mark Twain quotes recently. About a year ago, David, just a side note, everybody was quoting Einstein. And that's dubious at best because everything interesting gets attributed to Einstein. Einstein, But here you're, you're probably the third or fourth in the past month who's quoted Mark Twain. And I love this quote. You say, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I think I'm going around in circles. David Dreyer, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Bonnie. I'm very well. Glad to be here. Delighted to have you. Talk to me about the quote. How did you come to pick it? Are you a big Mark Twain? That's Samuel Langhorn Clemens, by the way. Are you a big Twain follower, or how did this come to be your quote for today? Well, more so to do with what I see happening today, uh, not just in manufacturing, but uh, business at large. We have a tendency to hang on to the past a little too much. We have a tendency not to appreciate that we're really on a bit of a, a hockey stick of change, uh, change happening really at exponential levels today. And what I think we're at, sometimes at risk of doing is looking at the way things have been done or looking in the past how things have changed and trying to project that into the future. 
And more so, I think, than ever before, we really need to come to any new problem or any new opportunity with a very open mind and understand that maybe the way we learned things before or what we saw evolving is no longer really relevant to what changes are coming here in the next year or so. So an open-mindedness, I know it's kind of a folksy wisdom with Mark Twain, but I, I think what is really apropos there is when you think about what may have been successful in the past, it may not be successful going forward. So we've got to really keep our eyes open and our mind open to new ideas. Thank you, David. Folksy is good. Folksy is, I think, non-threatening language and something with a little bit of humor thrown in, like this quote from Mark Twain, I think gets people's attention because in this case, with the ain'ts and the nots and the don'ts, you have to really sit down and look at it and say, wait a minute, you almost have to make a diagram on it. Where's the positive? Where's the negative? Where's the double negative? But more important, I want to just take you back for a second to my opening where I said to attention manufacturers, if it comes as a surprise to you that we're already midway into the four Fourth Industrial Revolution. So my question, David, is from your perspective in, in manufacturing at the Center of Excellence in SAP North America, do you think most manufacturing, I'll say CEOs, C-suite, top-of-the-line people are in the dark? Are they in denial? Do they know? Are they tuning in today and saying, wow, really? We're in a revolution? We're moving forward? I didn't know that. How many know this already, David? Oh, uh, Bonnie, I think it's more widely understood today than maybe we appreciate, especially from the outside looking in. But certainly with the CEOs and C-level executives that we're talking with today, the appreciation is there. I think there is a clarity, there's an understanding uh, that change is the mandate. So the immediate thing that follows is, are we ready for that change? Are our people ready to adopt this kind of change? And in my estimation, the bigger challenge in front of a lot of leaders today is not about the technology. I think we know we have the technology available today to do just about anything. The question is organizationally and culturally, are we ready? Will our people adapt? Will they get out of that mode of, well, that's the way we always did it in the past? Mm-hmm. And begin to think about the evolution and its implications for the change in the nature of their work. That's a big one. That's a big chasm to cross. And I think a lot of leaders are just uh, have some trepidation about whether their organization can pivot and move into these new, highly disruptive technological advances um, you know, in a way that's going to be constructive and helpful. Thank you very much. I'm thinking of a quote uh, before I introduce our third panel. Here's a quote. We just had this on our Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers show yesterday, David. Uh, The topic was, interestingly, digital transformation for utilities. Can utilities be saved by customer service innovations? Huge topic, and we're actually going to do part two in a couple weeks. But uh, one of our um, one of our guests, Michael Shanko from Consumers Energy CMS, quoted Grace Hopper, and I think you'll love this. She says, the most dangerous phrase in the language is, we've always done it this way. And Grace uh-huh. Hopper was the, pi- uh, yeah, the pioneering cons- computer scientist whose work was central to the development of COBOL, which was my favorite computing language back in the day. That's how I got started. Oh, really? In the, yeah, I was a major mainframe programmer. I mean, the, the key punch days. Oh, but I'm dating myself. David, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And let's bring on our third panelist, Rick Imber. If you're looking him up, it's I-M-B-E-R. He's the National VP for the Extended Supply Chain 
Center of Excellence, another center of excellence at SAP. And Rick has sent me a fabulous quote by Michael, or Michelangelo, we're going to call him. That's the way some people pronounce it. Just a little background. Michelangelo D. Lodovico Buonarati Simoni, I apologize for my terrible Italian accent, lived from 1475 to 1564, an Italian sculptor, painter, architect, poet, engineer of the high renaissance who exerted an unparalleled influence on the development of Western art straight out of the pages of Wikipedia. I didn't memorize that. Rick Imber sent me the following quote. The greatest danger for us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it is too low and we will reach it. Wow, great quote. Rick Ember, how have you been? I've been fantastic. How have you been, Bonnie? I'm fine. And a little secret here, you and I are cooking up a whole series about manufacturing with or for Game Changers for 2016. So I didn't really say that on the air, but I just want to let the cat a little bit out of the bag. So, Rick, this is exciting to have you back. Talk to me about this quote. Are you a big fan of, and do you say Michelangelo, Michelangelo, how do you pronounce it? You know, I'm a fan, absolutely. I would just say Michelangelo, and I certainly have never attempted to pronounce all of that other stuff you just said. (laughs) I tried. Um, So tell me about the quote. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) As far as this quote, I'm sure many people have heard it before. And and I was sitting here thinking about how it applied to, you know, life and my family and, and actually the factory floor and companies. And I will tell you, there is one caveat. (laughs) <laughs> to aim high and miss when reporting to the street is not a good thing. But in, in all other areas, you know, I, I think it's, it's worse to live by. So if we look at uh, the factory, you know, looking to have audacious goals for your supply chain or your environmental compliance or, you know, going digital or just cost reductions, you know, aiming high, aiming to uh, squeeze 12% of, out of your costs and achieving 10, that's a good thing. And if you aim too low and aim for 5% and get 7 uh, you know, it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And uh, survival of the fittest, as Darwin would say, and, and you won't be around for long if uh, you're not aiming high enough. But uh, personally, I also take it into my family life, and I tell my kids, hey, guys, uh, shoot for the sun, and if you end up on the moon, it's not such a bad thing. Now, this is not to imply I'm a fan of the you know, pass-fail culture where everyone gets a trophy. I, I think there's winners and losers, but yes. I do like my kids to aim high, and you know, I think one of the most important things for them is just uh, try your best. I agree. Very interesting words of wisdom, and I like the way you applied them to the real pe- real people, the people who are not sitting in the C- C-suite, the C-chairs, but when they go home have and have real lives. Rick, question for you. We're in the age of disruption, digital economy, the era of amazing innovations, design thinking, thinking outside the box, and some of the mantras of that new mindset at work are or is fail fast, fail often. Do you think that's part of what... Michelangelo was trying to say, aim too low and we will reach it. That's the danger, meaning today we're saying it's okay to fail as long as you do it quickly, you learn from it, you move on, and you do something better. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've never said it that way, but I love what you say there. That's absolutely what I think he meant by that. Um, We need to truly, uh, consistently try and innovate inside of our companies, and this will bring failures, and that's okay. Failing fast, learning from it, and moving on is is the key to success here. And so uh, I like the connection you just made there. 
Thank you very much. That's why you and I are going to work so well together on your series. But I digress. We've got some great information already on the table here. And now it's time to find out a little bit more about our panelists. So this is Coffee Break with Game Changers. I'm just going to ask Mark Frank, who's done this before, what are you drinking right now? What's in your cup today, Mark? Or what are you planning to drink after the show? In other words, who is Mark Frank and what do you like to drink? So, Bonnie, the, this weekend, it's, uh, it's, I, mean, I live in Michigan, and it's, it's the fall harvest. And so we spent, uh, we spent the weekend making a quick stop at, the, uh, at, a, at a little old cider mill just down the road. And so mm. our house is going crazy over, over fresh apple cider this week. So we've uh, nice. attempted to uh, try it in all kinds of different uh, recipes and other things. It's just been kind of a, it's a fun time of the year as the, the weather started to turn and you know, the lines weren't too long at the cider mill this week, and so that's been what's, uh, what's been in everybody's cup this week. Nice question for you, Mark. A grown-up question. Are you going to let any of it sit around long enough to ferment and turn into what I think they call hard cider and have a different kind of fun? While I would love to be able to keep it that long, I don't think my kids will, <laughs> will allow us to save it that long. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave feeling. the distilling to, uh, to others, and we'll just continue to get that off the shelf. Or you need a little secret room in the back of the garage or the basement that nobody knows about under lock and key, but you'll keep us posted on that. Thank you. That sounds delicious. Do you put a stick of cinnamon in your cider? Um, when we heat it up, we do. So when I do a, the, the hot cider, we put the cinnamon in. I'll be right over. Thank you very much. <laughs> David Dreyer, where are you calling from and what are you drinking or what are you thinking about drinking? Well, I am drinking and I'm calling from Pennsylvania just outside Philadelphia, but uh, I'm not sure that has much uh, relation to what I'm drinking. It is a Kickstart Hydrating Boost Pineapple Orange Mango. So I'm, I'm a flavorful kind of guy. I like my flavors, but I also like a Kickstart, um, which implies uh, high caffeine content. Yes, I'm still on the caffeine kick, but uh, probably goes back to my days in uh, early morning factory world. When I worked for Harley Davidson, we you know we had to be up and ready to go at six thirty in the morning, and we needed something to give us a kick in the pants. So uh, <laughs> get get your motor running was the theme, and that's uh, why I started drinking it, and I still do. I love it. I looked it up quickly. Is this a Mountain Dew product? Are you talking about Mountain it Dew is. Kickstart? I found it. Damn. Mountain Dew Kickstart Hydrating Boost Pineapple Orange. Anybody want to find it? It's it. the Thank you, W. I'm quick. <laughs> www.hy for hydrate dash. That's a dash done underscore V-E-E dot com. You can find it there. Or just go to mountaindew.com forward slash one word kickstart and you'll see, wow, I got to go look for that in the market. Do you drink it cold or do you drink it room temperature or, or warm, I dare say? No, no, cold. Cold is best. Yeah. Cold and it's, is... Uh, it's just a 12 ounce drink, so not a lot. And how so much caffeine? Well, that's good, but a lot, a lot uh, of know, caffeine? The print is so fine, I can't read it, but I know it's a lot. Ah, I'm, I'm going to go find out for you. By the way, did you know that espresso has only about, I think, 60% as much caffeine as a regular brewed coffee? Did you know that? No, I didn't. That's news. Yeah, it is news. I've been telling that to my panelists because people, well, I'm not drinking espresso. I don't even want to keep it down. And the answer is no, you are not. So there. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, David, and a pleasure to meet you. And I hope you're keeping warm in Pennsylvania. Likewise. Thank you. Rick Ember, what are you drinking today? Well, so, you know, I'm thinking about your coffee and espresso comment, but I drink about 600% more coffee, so I'm not sure how that works out. <laughs> uh, so in my cup... 
I had some coffee, but I'm so boring when it comes to coffee. I, I just drink Folgers and with tons of creamer, so I don't want to tell you about that story. I'll tell you what I'm missing in my cup, and I'm a little hesitant to tell you because Uh-oh. the last time I was on the show, I talked Uh-oh. about the breweries near my house, and yes. I'm going to talk about alcohol again, so I'm a little nervous people are going to start to judge me, so please don't judge no, me. No, no, no. We're going to enjoy you. We're not going to judge you. Believe <laughs> me, people are always looking for recommendations of something interesting to drink, so we'll right. just say Rick is fast-forwarding to party time later. What's your recommendation, No, Rick? actually, I'm rewinding because I'm – missing summertime because we have a little tradition here in my cul-de-sac out in front of my house. I live in San Diego and the weather's always pretty nice. But uh, during the summer, all the neighbors kind of meet out front in the cul-de-sac and the kids are riding their bikes around. And something kind of old school has been making a comeback and everybody's been sharing Moscow mules. And heck, until about a year ago, I'd never even heard of this thing. And for those of you who also have not heard of it, it's uh, they take these copper mugs. It comes in a special mug, which I just got the mugs at Costco, by the way. Uh, uh-huh. You put vodka, ginger beer, and it's ginger beer is not actually beer at all. It's more like ginger ale. Vodka, right. ginger beer, and lime juice in a copper mug, and it is delightfully refreshing at the end of a day on a Friday evening in the summer in my cul-de-sac. So I'm kind of missing that <laughs> is what I'm missing. <laughs> and you can find the recipe. Just Google thebar.com forward slash Moscow, M-O-S-C-O-W dash mule. It is also, did you know it has another name, Rick? Mm. It has another name? I Looked that up last night, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. It's vodka banger or something like that. Vodka buck, B-U-C-K, vodka buck. Go. Vodka buck. Hot, but, but here's the trick. It needs high-quality vodka, spicy ginger beer, and lime juice, and you have to garnish it with a slice or a wedge of lime. And the ingredients are usually four ounces of ginger beer, one and a half ounces of vodka, and a sixth of an ounce of lime juice. You stir gently and garnish. Pour it over ice or on the rocks, and whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, boy. We've gotten some interesting uh, interesting drinks here. And I'm going to tell you all that it, I'm drinking my usual water, as Rick and Mark know. But I'm going to be having a little bit of champagne tonight because it's my birthday today. So there. Ah, so I will thank you very much, October 7th. I'm not telling you the year. A lady tries not to tell her age too often. But I'm going to be celebrating with a little split of champagne. Not much of a drinker, but I'm looking for some bubbly. So there you go. So, uh, Rick, I definitely will save that for well after I do all my radio shows today. So those of you listening, we are having a good time, but we have a very serious topic. Transporting your factory into the future now. We're talking about manufacturing all over the world. Every footprint, every maturity, every part of the manufacturing hierarchy, we can call it, or the industry. Our special guests today are... Are Mark Frank at Deloitte, David Dreyer at SAP, and Rick Imber at SAP. We have a lot more to talk about. This is a really important topic. If you're missing out on innovation, if you're closing your mindset, if you know it's out there and you have to do it, but you don't know how to start, you don't know where to go, you don't know how to experiment, incubate, and you're just not sure what's coming next, take heart. We will help you, but word of warning, you're competitors may already be doing this and you'll be on the short end of that stick when it comes to survival. We want you to thrive. So stay tuned for the rest of our topic. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Justin out.
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase, an SAP company, offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. And we're back with Mark Frank at Deloitte Consulting, David Dreyer, and Rick Imber at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers Radio. We're talking about transforming, transporting, well, probably both, your factory into the future now. And this is part two of a very interesting topic. Mark Frank is going to start the roundtable. Mark, I'm going to read a couple of notes from the talking points you sent me, and then we'll expand it. So you say, and this is really important, you say, manufacturing used to revolve around physical products, yet simply making a better or cheaper product isn't enough. I'm going to stop there and let you expand it. Go ahead, Mark. So, Bonnie, if you, if you look at the, the manufacturing process, you know, I think everyone had been focusing for the last, you know, 30 years, even probably longer, of how do you continue to improve the process. But what we're seeing now, though, is with the advent of, of the various Internet of Things and the sensors and the different smart products, the physical products are actually turning into platforms, you know, with digital streams of data creating that smart product that's expanding the, the network from the manufacturing from both product design all the way to what data they can get from the client, customers, real time. It's actually creating a complete value loop where it used to have to be surveys, sensor groups, you know, different things to try and get that data from the the consumer, all that's happening real-time, and it's creating a whole different set of, of activities for manufacturers. Basically, you know, they're, they're changing their networks of who's, of who's driving different things. Um, there's a whole expansion of disruption in the market. So if you look at automotive, you see, you know, people like Google and Apple saying they want to go get into the connected car space. You've got your traditional manufacturers that are saying, you know, we can innovate and do some of those same things, and in some cases it's creating a forming of a new network in the, in the ecosystem and at the same time kind of driving to that how do you gain, you know, through that smart product, you know, a longer experience with your customer and how do you maintain that customer and that whole data stream and those who can take advantage of it I think will be able to maintain and keep those customers longer and evolve their manufacturing piece beyond just, how to efficiently make the product, but also how to efficiently serve their customers. So it's Interesting a fun perspective, part of the Mark. process as you look at those technologies. Mm-hmm. 
Question. New players coming in all the time, unlikely players entering the field who say, oh, I've got a better mousetrap. I can automate it. I can innovate it. I can make it sexy. I'll sell it. And you old mousetrap manufacturers, well, you're just dust. You're toast to me. So the question is, and, and I'm going to ask uh, David and Rick as well, question is, is it the, the role of a manufacturer who, who has the blinders off, who knows that there are disruptions, there are new entrants, there is innovation all over the map? and energy from all over the map coming into what they thought was their territory. Is it best for them to just start the design thinking innovation process inside and just throw, basically throw the cards on the, on the stairs and see which ones stick and which ones look like the best way to go? Or should they have their ear to the ground and say, oh, there's this guy named Mark Frank who just started a factory in, uh, in Wisconsin, and he's got this great idea. Well, that's our territory. We had better start innovating that kind of product because it's kind of like what we've been doing all along. So where should the manufacturers look, internally or at competition? Or, or home grow the new ways of doing business, Mark? You know, I, I think they have to look at all of it. I think those that that are able to adapt and take those lessons, I think are going to be the ones that can transform. And I think that small factory in, you know, in Wisconsin, as you say, I think those pieces jumping into the network, the manufacturers that can take advantage of that and stay nimble are going to be the ones that are going to thrive. There's going to be certain areas especially when you kind of talk, talk about high capital intensive of manufacturing, that I think you'll see less of that, but you'll see more of that disruption as they kind of deal with their, you know, the, the extension of the products. But I, I think people are going to have to continue to look at those new ideas and, and grab them versus just having their innovation shop in-house. And I think they're going to have to have a little bit of both. We're seeing a lot of manufacturers kind of creating some of those smaller um, niche startups to, you know, add to the innovation piece. You know, if you look at automotive, everyone's kind of creating a design center in Silicon Valley right now to try and take advantage of that, uh, that vibe and that design aspect that has been so prevalent in the high-tech industry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. David Dreyer, love to hear your thoughts on this. Talk to us. Well, I like what Mark just mentioned about the concept of, of creating virtual loops that go from our original inception, innovation design, out to and through the customer, and coming back then with feedback in a, a nice feedback loop. I think what manufacturers are tuning into more than anything is we've always talked about a focus on the customer, right? It's about a relationship that we establish with the customer. The difference today is whereas that might have been more ad hoc in the past or incidental in some cases, it's now continuous. And so we have the tools, we've got the mechanisms to communicate uh, both directly and indirectly with uh, customers of today as well as future customers. And what I think manufacturing is realizing is you can no longer design in a vacuum and deliver what you expect the customer is going to want you've got to have a mechanism to reach out into that customer base and have that feedback or that original idea brought directly into your design stage. So it's it's really a continuum today of digital knowledge and awareness that creates a new experience for the customer. And boy, increasingly, that's what customers are about today. It's not just transaction-based consumption of a product. It's the entire experience of working with a supplier and having input into the evolution of whatever the value is you're producing. 
So that's a big change. It is a big change. Can I ask you for a moment to reflect back on your 10 years in various IT leadership roles with Harley-Davidson, or is that something you can't talk about mm -hmm. to us in terms of applying oh. what you're saying and the theory to, to practice of a very well-known? I think Harley is one of the most <clears throat> beloved brands in the world, I've read. So anything you could share with us, David? Yeah, it sure is a, um, a marquee brand, and for good reason, uh, but more so today than ever, and the evolution of that customer-centric behavior. And that's one of the things I really admire about the brand today, and I think they're on the right track. They understand the essence of the customer driving what your product is and becomes. And the Harley-Davidson of today, if you look at some of the innovation they're talking about, the electric motorcycle, that was unheard of even five years ago. And nor would anybody assume that a customer would want an electric motorcycle, right? They want the rumble of that mm -hmm. combustion engine producing that unique sound. So why would they ever want something like an electric bike? But in reality, uh, by listening and drawing the customer into that design stage, Harley's been able to come up with something very unique that has some appeal, and I think they're going to build it. Hmm, interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Rick Ember, want to hear what you have to say. Talk to us. Yeah, so I'm going to go back to the original sentence that making uh, better or cheaper products isn't enough. I, I do agree with that statement in general, but I also point to exceptions and sit here and say, well, tell that to Apple. Um, they made uh, better, more innovative products, and they're killing it, and the price points through the roof, and they've become you know, one of the richest companies on the planet. Um, but I do agree in, uh, in theory that absolutely – um, you know, companies need to focus on squeezing costs out of their uh, value chain and also um, shedding unrelated business processes. And so I think uh, in today's digital economy, it becomes easier and easier for companies to do that, whether they want to outsource certain parts of their manufacturing process or even outsource maintenance of their factory floor. I mean, uh, there's a company called ATS out there. They a bunch of maintenance and engineering maintenance clerks and uh, engineers from Caterpillar that went and started their own company, ATS, and that's all they do is run around and providing maintenance so companies can focus on their core competency of building stuff and not maintaining the equipment. So, and then as far as the, uh, the feedback loop from the customer, I completely agree with uh, everything that's been said before. In fact, I think we're moving towards highly customized uh, products. Uh, at SAP, we like to talk about a lot size of one where customers mm -hmm. can actually interact with uh, companies manufacturing things and um, get highly specific and customized items produced just for their likes. Make for me, right? Isn't that the make for me model? That's yeah. right. That's Which hardly it. it was a pioneer for. Yeah, very interesting. It all comes back into the loop here. Mark Frank, anything you want to add to what your co-panelists just shared on your topic? Um, I, I think the only thing to add, and I and I agree with Rick that you know that people like Apple are are killing it by not by creating the new product. But I also think that that as we as we look at that value chain, there is so much more value that that. People like Apple get out of hearing their customer and being digitally connected to them that allows them to to take advantage of those things. And I think that's the piece that becomes a bit more disruptive as as the technology and the smart platforms really expand. And those that have that feedback loop, I think, are going to be able to focus on those things that 
that uh, are going to be able to add value to their value chain, whether it's through others or just through their product innovation. So. Thank you. David Dreyer, I want to go into a slightly different uh, area of this topic. I'm looking at your notes, and here's something mm-hmm. that Kat caught my attention. You talk about the ascendance of collaborative business models. I'm going to read one sentence here, and there's a lot of meat on the bones here. I'd love you to open it up for us. You say, factory process, you believe, will adopt sharing models via business networks for innovation and design through focused crowdsourcing. That's something I'd like you to explain. Open source development mm-hmm. and collaborative multi-level simulation models. That's a wow. That's a that's a 101 on manufacturing of the future in the fourth industrial revolution. So why don't you pick that apart for us, and then we'll invite your co-panelists to talk about it. Go ahead, David. Sure. Yeah, that, that was a mouthful there, I suppose. Oh, yeah. A little more breadth and depth, but let me give a little depth to it. So what we do see happening, and there's a lot of interesting um, uh, cooperative approach around this as well, manufacturers coming into uh, a network environment with the rise of cloud computing, social media, mobility, the opportunities to reach out and bring ideas into a shared model uh, greater than they've ever been in the past. And what we see now is, uh, whether it's manufacturers or the designers within manufacturers, looking at crowdsourcing where essentially you have a platform with public access, and that public access is sort of self-defined in terms of the area of interest, but Uh, You're getting design input and you're getting creative thought coming from sources you never before accessed or paid much attention to necessarily. And what it does is it informs a much larger horizon of creative opportunity. And frankly, you know, it's no cost. When you look at some of the uh, crowdsourcing avenues that are out there today, these are voluntary uh, self-created networks around common areas of interest. And the more manufacturers can leverage that, the more they can accelerate the innovation in their design process. Very interesting. I just looked up crowdsourcing for manufacturers. With your permission for just a moment here, David, I'm just going to read what I found. The website is crowdsource.com. It's a blog. Uh, This one particular article was published way back in September 2012. Uh, And they say, as enterprise businesses embrace crowdsourcing in an increasing number of ways, manufacturers are poised to benefit from the distributed problem solving that crowd provides. In fact, many big name manufacturers are already using the crowd, including P&G, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, J&J, Johnson & Johnson, Fiat. There we got automotive in there and many others. From design to research and development, the crowd, the crowd, now it sounds like it's the thing, the, the folks, the crowd, offers any manufacturer the ability to innovate, research new concepts, design new products, and fine-tune designs and concepts. Is that what you had in mind, David? That's on the spot, exactly. Yeah. Good, good, good. So let's see uh, Let's see what Rick Imber has to say about all of this. We can focus on this or any of the other parts of what David introduced. Go ahead, Rick. Oh, well, I was just thinking about how uh, I, I agree with Dave on, on this, and, and I see a lot of um, factories nowadays going into the multi, multimodal um, capabilities where they can kind of pivot and provide manufacturing services for 
different lines of business. In fact, there was uh, a big announcement for a big manufacturer. They invested over $200 million in this. Br- they're calling it the Brilliant Factory, and where basically the equipment inter- uh, interacts with the computers and production interacts with the supply chain and service and distribution networks to give us this overall digital environment that is absolutely amazing. And, and as I sit here and think about crowdsourcing, I think about um, traditional niche people, you know, people with an idea, a single person with an idea is now can compete with traditional manufacturers. And, and the story I like is, I mean, this may be a little a hair off topic, but the coolest, it's this new cooler. Some guy had an idea to redo the cooler, and he wants to compete with, when I thought of coolers, I thought of Coleman. And uh, mm-hmm. this guy who came up with the coolest, he wanted his cooler to have, you know, speakers and bottle openers and chargers and Bluetooth and all this other stuff. Oh, a blender. His cooler has a blender. And so basically he crowdsourced this thing. Biggest uh, success in the history of crowdsourcing for this particular platform. He raised $13.5 million and now he's got 65,000 backers. And he's going he's going to outsource manufacture this thing in Asia, although he's not saying where. These are the kind of cool things that are happening nowadays. That is a cool thing. Mark Frank, how cool do you think that is? Agree? Um, I do agree. I think that the, you know, the ability to digitally connect the crowd to go either do R&D work or just prove out um, items is, is fascinating. I mean, I think that uh, I think a couple of years ago there was a big, there was a, a contest. It wasn't kind of, it wasn't, it was more like an XPRIZE contest rather than a pure crowdsource, but there was a, a test given given out there to say, mm-hmm. you know, what can, can you build a car through 3D printing? And local, more, local motors, you know, basically took a proof of concept and, and basically built a car <clears throat> completely out of 3D, 3D printing. Um, it ended up becoming a kit car for regulatory purposes, but they were able to prove to the, you know, to the, the manufacturing world that you, you, can, you can build things out of, unconventional materials and it all kind of started with an idea to put a contest out there so you know Mm -hmm. you you look at things like rick said where you know people have an idea and they want to go try and get it funded and you've got other manufacturers kind of saying let's go test the envelope and put a a contest out and see what comes up so it's question who who owns the idea if it gets produced let's say that uh harley were to put out there a contest let me turn this back over to David Dwyer, what if Harley put out a contest? Design the next set of amazing handlebars that have Wi-Fi and and pour your Kickstart drink in the morning and uh, tell you when it's time to go home for dinner and <laughs> give you an alert when your kids need a morality lesson, like Rick Imber likes to do, talking about how to give your instill good core values in your children. A handlebar that does all that. And what if you put that out to a crowdsource? campaign who owns the idea i don't want to get into a lot of legal 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 stuff but just for the benefit of manufacturers listening who were listening and saying what crowdsourcing you're kidding me we couldn't try that are there any dangers to it uh david do you want to talk about that i don't doubt for a minute bonnie that the legal community would love to be engaged in that (laughs) discussion with any manufacturer but the truth is along with the dynamics that we're seeing in the execution side is the intellectual property side of this, and it is important. And what we're seeing is a flexibility coming into this where there are what are called IP sharing agreements. So, yes, you know, the lawyers will get their share of the pie here, but in reality, companies are adopting sharing models with the key 
value contributors, if you will, to those ideas. So yes, in fact, someone with a very strong creative input can begin to share in some of that intellectual property. Now, the rewards of that, uh, the residuals that come out of that, that's where the uh, attorney, the illegal side, really has to come into play and define that. But I think companies are opening up and recognizing that there's much to gain for their customers, especially when they do this. So figure out a way to make it work. IP sharing is becoming more common. We're seeing it across the board. Interesting, IP being intellectual property. I have one more thing I want to bring up from your notes, David, before we move on to some of Rick's. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's some, I love statistics. I love the numbers when they jump off the page. And you say the paltry, an old-fashioned but very, very meaningful word, the paltry estimate of 17% factory readiness for Industry 4.0 and the Internet of Things applications is a gap that cries out for better options to network existing equipment. Can you translate that for us, David? Sure, yeah. I mean, this has been a a challenge in manufacturing for many years because traditionally manufacturing has been what's called laggards in the adoption curve around technology. So there's some of the last to really get on board. Now, what that means is that when we look at the fabric of communication that empowers a lot of this digital capability, it means the basic connectivity on the factory floor of equipment, devices, people, and process. Mm-hmm. Historically, not so good. Now, Harley, again, not to overreach on that brand, but they've done a very good job of leveraging that. They are part of that 17%, certainly, but that means there's 83% out there that are still trying to figure it out. So what's happening is uh, the suppliers uh, in that support environment are working very hard to create more turnkey capabilities, more wireless uh, capabilities, so we don't have to get in and do the old blue cable hardwired connected to device. It's all moving into a more low-energy Bluetooth-type environment, and that's going to give, I think, manufacturers in that 83% a leg up to make it less cost-prohibitive. Um, and simpler to uh, implement and adopt to get communication with all of those devices that make up the factory environment today. So that's important. Thank you. Very important. And I think that's a perfect segue, at least in my mind it is, to some notes from Rick Imbruce waiting so patiently to talk about this. Rick, I'm looking at your notes. There's something that jumps out at me. You say one of the biggest mega trends we see in business today, the digital transformation of enterprises. And let's talk about that in reference to manufacturing. You talk about in-memory computing, which I mentioned in the opening, mobile devices, social media, machine-to-machine technology, cloud computing, and so much more are changing the the way enterprises do business, this needs to make its way down to the factory floor. That sounds like a mantra, a mandate. Every manufacturer needs to write that somewhere on a sticky note and scotch tape it to their wall. Talk to me, Rick. How important is this really? Oh, I, I see it as the future. I mean, I think it's what every factory of the future, I think it's what every enterprise of the future needs to strive towards. You know, And a lot of people sit there and go, well, what is a digital enterprise? Um, and, you know, what does that mean? Am I paperless? Am I going to put my documents uh, in sort of uh, in the computer? Is that it? And that's, no, that's not it. I mean, that may be one speck of it. But as we look, uh, the technology exists right now for enterprises to go completely digital. And if you think about your business um, and the four major buckets of uh, or aspects of your business, your workforce, your suppliers, your customers, and your assets, you know, being on the factory floor, 
We have a way to go digital with all of this like never before. And if you think about your workforce, whether or not you want to leverage contingent labor out on the factory floor or whether you're looking to hire and retain and retire your, your, the millennial workforce, or if you think about your suppliers, you know, if you need to fix a piece of equipment on the factory floor, can you connect out to some sort of business network digitally and look for qualified available vendors to come repair your equipment, or more importantly, can you connect into the business network and find suitable replacement parts um, and analyze the different vendors and the different parts they're selling? Yes, you can. You can do this all digitally now. And, it, you know, what used to be a long, involved, paper-based, back-and-forth, snail mail, email, this and that, we can all do digitally now and just connect our needs in the enterprise with our suppliers. If you think about the customers, SAP likes to talk from tweet to receipt. You know, customers say, hey, they tweet, I'm looking for the next phone. And I did this myself. Hey, should I go Samsung or Microsoft or Apple? And then, you know, being able to, you know, uh, tie in uh, an enterprise, being able to tie into this social media and produce lot size of one, uh, configure that custom Harley for your customer, configure that custom phone with the graphics on the back, being able to take the demands of your customer and bringing that down to the factory floor. And then the fourth bucket, the assets, making sure that you've got your assets completely and digitally connected to all the other buckets so that you can start to do predictive and preventative uh, maintenance on your equipment to make sure you have increased uptime, uh, making sure you have increased uh, overall equipment effectiveness, uh, increased throughput. The list goes on and on and on. Let me back up and just say, you know, the digital enterprise sits the middle of this, and never before have we seen the ability to interact with all the areas of your business digitally. And I think it's, if you want to survive, you better get on that train. And I think that's our message here. Thank you. Mark Frank, thoughts on what Rick just shared, please. You know, it's interesting. As Rick was talking, I, it, it reminded me of an article I saw last week um, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal. It was a, I think it was an interview with the GECIO um, talking about their plans to, to install what, what they're calling the industrial Internet on all of their internal systems to actually link all, it's like close to 100 diff- different factories and really trying to digitally track all three phases of manufacturing from design, production, and field service. And, you know, the, the initial pieces, it started off as, you know, just to, as, a, as a reduction in, in plant downtime. So they're, they're expecting to see, you know, 10 to 20% of unplanned downtime to go away. Um, but at the same time, they're seeing it as a business model that's going to drive revenue within their value stream. So, I mean, if I look at, you know, that's, that's a real-life example of, of, somebody that put together the business case that says, here's what you get by putting all that digital pieces together. And I just think that as you look at each element of data within, you know, within the enterprise, you're going to see lots of different applications that, you know, drive what Rick was talking about, whether it's warranty and, you know, warranty analytics to say this is when your end product is going to need service, or whether it's plant maintenance that says the machine needs service, I think the, the more you have that digital footprint across, the more data people are going to have that they're going to be able to react to. And with data, you get innovation. And I think that's just, you know, but I agree with, you know, the, I think some of the comments that David said that, you know, that people haven't, you know, our, our manufacturers are still, you know, I think you, you use the term poultry. I mean, I think they're still working mm-hmm. on it, but there's some, 
real live examples out there of, of people pushing the envelope. I'm going to give you all a couple of uh, interesting words here from a September 29, 2014 article in Forbes. The title was The Future of Manufacturing as Told in Four Objects by Bruce Upbin, U-P-B-I-N, Forbes staff who uh, covers technology. He says, fungus buildings, algorithmic chairs, germ-fighting iPhone cases, and they're talking about Autodesk, the software giant, ushering in a revolution in materials science you may not even see coming. I think I garbled that, but you'll get the idea. I just tweeted, uh, very, very interesting, a little provocative and slightly off topic, but interesting as well. I tweeted it at hashtag SAP Radio. You know what? It's time for us to do what we've been doing for the entire show is look into the future. It's time for the crystal ball predictions round. I'm going to circle back to Mark Frank. And Mark, you know the drill. I think I can give you exactly 60 seconds. I still love the year 2020, Mark. Up to you, how far in the future? Is it tomorrow, next week, next month, or 10 years out? How far ahead will we be talking about the future of the factory, future manufacturing, in a different way than we are right now? What will change? Mark Frank, prediction 60 seconds, go. So my prediction has to do more with the the statistic that says more and more people are going to shift to cities. I think in, 20, in 2006, we basically were at 50% city dwellers. And I think that in 2050, they're basically planning that the, the thoughts are it's going to be close to 90%. I think they're going to see so many sensors in the marketplace in such close proximity that manufacturers are going to have much better data coming from their consumers that they're going to have to innovate quicker. And I think that's going to be the piece that we're going to continue to talk about as technology exponentially changes, that we'll continue to see shifts in how the manufacturing environment deals with those. I think there's just cool things to come. Cool. I like that. Cool things to come. That's the. That's probably one of the sexiest things we've said on the whole show. It is cool. We're not doing dire warnings here. We're trying to say, manufacturers, open the blinds. Let the light in. It's cool. If you want to survive, you can do some cool stuff. Thank you, Mark Frank. David Dreyer, SAP, North America Center for Excellence Manufacturing. 60 seconds. Predictions go, David. Well, you might recall I published a blog here in the last couple of weeks where I talked about the factory in 2020. And here's my core premise. The value chain starts to decouple, a decomposition in the value chain. And here's what I mean by that. It used to be within four walls from inception of design through delivery that a manufacturer was one entity, one physical presence. I think what we're going to see in the next 20 years is the customer relationship is going to be owned by the idea not by the execution. And what we'll see is the mm. evolution of manufacturing as a service, where manufacturing will be the center to idea creators. The idea creators will be able to have their idea brought to life through the manufacturing center, basically leveraging it as a, as a service, and then delivering the product to the customer through a variety of different mechanisms for delivery. So now the customer relationship is owned by the idea the owner of the idea, not the delivery mechanism. So that's going to change things drastically. That's exciting, too. Thank you very much. Rick Ember, 60 seconds. Predictions, go. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, 2020 is only six years away, so I sit here and kind of reiterate some of the themes we've already been talking here about here when I think about uh, the uh, future. I think we'll see more and more trends towards a lot size of one or what I think you said, manufacture for me, made for me. I think that'll get more and more prevalent. 
And then also, the thing I personally tend to be ravenous about, and I think more and more consumers will get this way, is the whole concept that um, Mark alluded to was the, the products as platforms. I mean, you can just point to so many different things from Echo and Dash and Philips Hue and Nest and your TVs and, heck, your refrigerators, your ovens, uh, Naki. Uh, there's so many products out there, and everything's connected to the Internet, and everything has a service cost associated with it. But it is cool stuff, and I think we're going to see more and more and more products as platforms uh, here in the near future. Thank you very much. Appreciative to my three extraordinary panelists, Mark Frank at Deloitte Consulting. Thank you. David Dreyer, so happy to have you on board. Rick Imber, always a pleasure. And you and I have a lot of work to do to get a new series ready for 2016. So if you're in manufacturing, hope you listened, hope you enjoyed. This show will be on podcast on demand very, very soon. I've got 30 seconds to close. So let me do a quick shout out to Marty Mrugel at SAP. Of course, Rick Imber and Justin and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Wonder what kind of cool seatbelts are manufacturing in the next four or five years. What are you waiting for? Put it on anyway. Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.